I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest has one of the biggest single jobs in our business. As president of property and casualty for Swiss Re in the US, Keith Wolf has huge responsibility. This is because, on most measures, his employer is the largest writer of reinsurance in the US. This gives him unrivaled visibility on what is the largest insurance market in the world. I've met Keith many times in the past, chairing him at US-based conferences. He is always good-humoured and always says it like it is, in ways that you might not expect from someone who is part of such a large multinational organisation. I'm happy to report that in this encounter he was on excellent form as we dissected the US market from top to bottom via COVID, casualty, cyber, automatic underwriting and of course the state of the market and the prospects for upcoming renewals. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. So, Keith, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak to the Voice of Insurance. Let's get straight into market things. At a group level, Swiss Re shrank the top line at 1-1 despite good underlying price rises. Was that the story for you in the US? And was that really simply a product of more caution on your part? Or was it more continued re-underwriting? Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you having me today. It's a little more nuanced answer, perhaps, than you would expect. And it's pretty specific to Swiss Re. So we had written over the last several years, a pretty casualty-heavy portfolio here in the United States. And as we had shaped up the entire portfolio, we realized we were actually a bit too heavy in casualty exposure. So this wasn't around really the pricing environment. It was more portfolio mix issue we were struggling with. So the unfortunate part of it is as the market's firming in price, which is really much more firm in the primary than it is in reinsurance, to be honest, we were also trying to manage our portfolio mix to the desired target that we had. So that was really what manifested here in the United States on the casualty side at 1-1 for us. So. In terms of that rebalancing, now that you've you've been through those renewals, are you kind of done with that now? And can you get back into more of a growth mode, perhaps? So our balance is back where we want it, for sure. We did grow property a bit that helped with that mix change back to the the target that we would like. 
I mentioned already, you know, primary insurance rates, I think, across the board are firmer than they are in the reinsurance space generally. Now, when we have proportional reinsurance programs, we get the benefit of that a little bit more than in the non-proportional space generally. But we have not seen anything in the reinsurance space that makes us say hard market per se. Well, okay. So I apologize. There's probably one area that was a struggle last year and probably will be this year in the U.S. market, and that's Florida. So Florida Cat specifically is is pretty challenged, and we're going through that renewal season right now. That space particularly, I think, is hard. But the rest of it, from a reinsurance perspective, deals are getting done. They are getting done in a fairly orderly manner from a reinsurance perspective. And we're not seeing shortfall covers across the board and in lines of business, which to me is the real indication of a hard market. Deals can't get done at any price, at least some of them. And that's not what we're seeing in most cases. Any classes? Anecdotally, we look at DNO and usually financial lines and those kind of classes. Are they not having any difficulty? Or is that really more on the insurance side? I think it's more on the insurance side, to be honest, because we've seen a lot of those reinsurance placements that would support things in the professional line space, using your example. And the rates in the underlying market are significant in terms of the increase, strong double-digit increases that we've seen, some of them north of 50% on portfolio-level metrics, which is quite staggering when you think about it. That is also a market that we would have viewed as quite depressed over the last several years and woefully underpriced. So now I think the improvement is necessary, even at that magnitude, but we're not convinced even that it's enough, which is scary. I think MedMal is the one that right now is, is most concerning because with the combination of the pandemic and a lot of litigation that has been postponed and the people that are now finally getting back in to see physicians and have delayed a lot of medical care and there are going to be a lot of arguments over why that was, I think there's going to be a problem in the MedMal space going forward that is not really priced into the product that was sold. And then you're naturally going to have some liability related to misdiagnosis related to COVID and all the knock-on effects of that that are going to come through. So I think there's a lot of drag or potential headwinds against that particular line of business that we have yet to see in the actual results of most of the insurance portfolios. So you're describing a more of an insurance-driven hard market that you, as a reinsurer, particularly if you're in proportional, you get to tag along with. When you see some of these areas of concern, do you feel that as a reinsurer, you could be helping to harden that market by being more difficult on some of these lines, on DNO, MedMal, or things that are of concern? Could you be applying breaks there and actually helping to harden that market further to your satisfaction? It's an interesting question, Mark, because you know if you go back a decade, certainly two or three decades ago, reinsurance drove a lot of the hard markets and the cycles that happened in those time periods. It's not really what's going on right now, and we haven't seen that probably since the mid-2000s, to be honest. I, I can't think of a time since the financial crisis where reinsurance really drove on a broad basis, you know, hardening of, of primary insurance pricing. It's actually happening from the front end and backwards, as opposed to us driving it in the industry of reinsurance. So I actually like that. I like it better that it's closer to the people who are writing the checks who are deciding what the right price of the product is. And then on the reinsurance side, we want to make sure we get an adequate price for the risk transfer that is involved in our transactions with the primary insurance companies. One of the things that's a bit disturbing is actually that the primary rate in some of the casualty spaces, particularly, which is improving significantly in the primary space, has not really flowed through to the reinsurance, even in proportional deals. And what I mean by this is we've seen 
significant numbers of transactions where seating commissions on proportional deals are increasing, or at least that's what they're asking for as buyers. And they're getting these deals done with increased seating commissions already, which is really backwards from where I think it should be. Do you think that's a bit premature is what they're asking for the profit to be acknowledged up front without having made the profit yet? Correct. Those deals we struggle with considerably at Swiss Re and I think probably as a reinsurance industry, but that would probably have been the biggest struggle we had on deals we liked in terms of the underlying risk this year in renewals and those that we did not end up supporting because fundamentally we didn't understand why seating commissions would go up almost in advance. Like you said, it's like prepaid profit to the carriers who are buying the reinsurance, which just fundamentally doesn't make sense to us. So how comfortable are you now after so much readjustment in US casualty? We know there's obviously been inflation in loss trends, but we have had increased rate. Are you comfortable now with rating adequacy and also with underlying reserve strength on some of these classes? So do you think we're ahead of the curve, other than perhaps some of those specific classes where there's worry that you're mentioning? Do you think in general, we're ahead of the curve? Or do you think there's a bit more pain and catching up potentially to come? I think the answer probably changes by major line of business you would look at. So maybe an easier answer on motor specifically, you know, the industry, both primary and reinsurance made some pretty difficult decisions over the last several years, especially if you look at underwriting years from 16 to even into 19 almost, but certainly through 18, we missed as an industry an entire sea change of how the motor industry was going to operate from a loss standpoint, both in terms of severity and frequency. And that I think has largely been corrected throughout the entire value chain. And I don't think you're going to see surprises in the motor space in anybody's portfolio anymore, all of us being equal. You know, that that period is now behind us. And I think we've got it under control from what was happening with distracted driving to all of the technology that caused bumper to bumper crashes go up tenfold in terms of the expense related to resolving those claims. On the GL space, I'm optimistic. But one thing that is concerning right now is, again, the delay in litigation due to the pandemic. You know, courts have been closed for a very long time now in most jurisdictions. That is not going to be there forever. There is a backlog there. There is definitely some sort of bifurcation of smaller claims that are being settled as opposed to going through the litigation system. And then there is those that are left over, which are at a threshold that means something big to someone involved, and they are holding out until the courts open. And that gate is going to open soon. And we're going to see some sort of a spike. The question is, how big and how broad in terms of the stuff that has not come through that system yet? And presumably, any delay is always more costly from an insurer's perspective, if it is something that you're going to have to pay. Yeah, we don't usually like long, drawn-out claims that go into litigation. That's not good for anybody involved, frankly, not just the insurance industry, but also the people involved who have filed the claims. Nobody wants these things to draw out. And unfortunately, we're all in a circumstance now where they're going to, or they have. You mentioned about Florida, somewhere where you're happy. So I'm presuming that your expectations going into those mid-year Florida renewals, cat renewals, is pretty good. You're going to get more rate rises, you expect. Yeah, maybe again, baseline for Swiss Re, if it's Florida specific, you know, call it the homeowners operators down there who are the specialist carriers that flex with citizens and the Hurricane Cat Fund is a composite piece of how that market operates in the homeowner space. We are a fairly small part of that market. We are under market weight. So if you look at our global PNC market share, depending on which jurisdiction you want to include, it's somewhere between 10 and 12%. In Florida, in that specific space we're talking about, we're probably something like four, maybe five. 
So it's quite small. Do we see an opportunity to participate more in that market as rates firm? Yes. I would tell you it's certainly not to the extent that we would grow to 10 or 12% market share down there. One of the challenges I think we have in that particular market is there are some operators in the primary market that we just don't want to do business with. We don't think they're very good operators. So it's not a pricing issue. This is a, I don't really want to do business with you. And those are a wide range of reasons. But the point is, we just don't think they're the best operators to back. The ones that we do back already, we are probably in a position where we've got as much of the risk as we want. There's a few exceptions where we would write more of their business if we're already on the deal and the price firms even more. But that particular market, I don't think is a wild growth opportunity for us. Even if the market prices in the primary doubled, I don't think we would double our market share down there. That's not how we look at it. You're really looking at the quality of the sedent there. And if you get better quality potential sedents and more opportunities with those, then you'd look at those. But in general, you're not overly enamored of all of the showing that is available. That's a fair summary. Absolutely, Mark. Maybe on more national kind of programs, a great feature, particularly for journalists writing about it, the US property cat market has been the gift that keeps giving to us. It keeps giving us new property cat scenarios that we hadn't necessarily envisaged ourselves and perhaps hadn't always been modeled or even priced for. Do you think now after so many different events over the last three or four years that we've now got a bit of a handle on, and also a price perhaps, on unexpected and unmodeled latent cat loss events that have been occurring? I think I'd be quite naive if I said we do. (laughs) And two examples I can think of, one that's been with us now for several years, which is wildfire. I think anybody who believes that they've nailed how to model wildfire risk is kidding themselves, to be honest. I think there are ways to understand that risk that can get you comfortable with writing it because we have a big book of it. But we are not bullish on writing more wildfire because we think we figured out the holy grail of how to price it and underwrite it. Then you look at what just happened in Texas and the idea of a far-flung cold event that comes so far south, nobody's ever seen it before, you know, with the temperatures that were involved in Houston, as an example, in Dallas as well. And nobody had thought about a scenario like this, and especially the knock-on effects of what could happen when the power grid goes down. I mean, these, these complications are not modeled at all and they probably won't ever be. We will get surprised by something again like that event. The nice part is, you know, in the reinsurance space, the way we control this is tracking accumulations. If you're geographically dispersed and you're not writing too much in a space compared to your market share anywhere else, it's not an insignificant event, but it's not something that's going to be a balance sheet event either or anything close to that. Now, if you write in Texas as a primary homeowner's writer in Houston, you probably have a pretty difficult road ahead of you. I'm gauging that you're fairly comfortable with your market position, the fact that you've got such fantastic diversification, probably with so many relationships around 50 states, that you're not feeling particularly any more bullish or retrenching either. You sound like you're happy to stick with the exposure that you've got. Yeah, at this point, I mean, we always like our portfolio. We're a big participant in the market. Do we look to grow? Absolutely, in areas where we see opportunity and where clients actually have a need. That's the other thing, right? We, we don't drive demand and reinsurance. We drive supply. So if somebody really has a need, then we're there to at least evaluate it, see if it fits our risk profile at that particular point in time. This Florida example is a good one, right? We will write some more business in Florida, I'm sure, over the next three months. With whom and how much, I don't know yet. But the point is, there is clearly something down there going on that 
I think we can assist with, but we're not going to help everybody and we're not going to solve the entire problem ourselves, nor should that be our role as one carrier in that space. Do you think maybe with some of these, the classic response of something that you can't get a handle on is to exclude? And do you think there might become exclude, freeze, exclude, fire, wildfire, I mean? It depends on the scenario and the two you just gave. No, I would not see those as areas where we would exclude. It's not that we can't underwrite it. It's just it has a lot of uncertainty around it. So then you have to price for that uncertainty as opposed to pandemic-related business interruption exposure. Obviously, a very hot topic in many jurisdictions, and it's a very different scenario based on politics and regulatory environment worldwide as to how that's going to settle out in the insurance space. In the U.S., using that example, pandemic risk is very difficult to load onto insurance and reinsurance company balance sheets if you wanted all that risk to flow into the private market. It's just not possible. There's not enough capital backing it for the problems that have manifested as we've gone through this. And most people understand that. I do think that there's probably an opportunity for the private market to think about how to help this problem because it's coming again, right? We will have another pandemic. I think it's not if, it's when. And how can the industry make the next go around a little bit easier for society, whether that's risk participation, even in a small space or some other way to help facilitate public-private partnership dollars to flow through the economy? Because we really did not do a very good job at that, certainly in the United States this time. Do you think the solution might be quite low sublimits that get paid out pretty quickly, almost like sort of fixed benefits? It just depends on the problem you're trying to solve. That is an option. We're not going to be the holy grail for all of it, no matter what. Can we play a bigger part than we did as an industry for COVID-19? Absolutely. Are we going to be the holy grail that solves all the problems? No. There's no way that's going to work again, because we just don't have enough capital backing our balance sheets to play that role. I want to come back to your question because about the exclusions, you know, one of the other pieces I don't want to miss here is just clarity, right? Contract clarity. So we use the COVID-19 and pandemic stuff related to BI. You know, one of the things we have been fortunate with in the United States is as an industry, we actually have some very good standardized wording that makes it really clear what's covered and what's not. And most people use those policy forms in the primary space. And then we track a lot of that when we put our reinsurance contracts in place. That has unfortunately not been the case in a lot of Europe. You know, the UK has obviously had struggles that are very specific to that market, but even continental Europe. One of the problems there is that there was very weird or gray contract language in both primary and reinsurance contracts that weren't clear on what was and what wasn't covered in this particular scenario. So that's creating a lot of challenges. So going back to the point of contract clarity for our industry is exceptionally important. And one of the areas we focused on recently is cyber. And I know this is a big, important thing for the London market as well. Hey, if you want cyber coverage, let's put it in, call it that, and you pay for it. If you don't want it, let's exclude it. Let's not be silent and guess later whether there's coverage or not. That's not good for anybody involved. And we never like that, whatever the scenario is. So to take it from your analysis, Keith, we're unlikely to see a lot of work coverage-related disputes between insurers and reinsurers in the States over COVID? There's a few going on, but they're very specific exceptions. So if you had somebody as a primary carer who was using their own bespoke forms that were not on some of the standards like ISO or AAIS, and they did not use virus exclusions, those combinations are out there, but they're a pretty small part of the market. 
so you have litigation that's working its way through the system and you're getting consolidation of some lawsuits in certain examples with those particular carriers that find themselves outside of the norm that are going through. But this is not going to be a systemic problem. This is going to be an isolated issue, I think, for a handful of carriers and then ultimately the reinsurers that back them. But none of those have actually progressed to the point of actually saying there's coverage that was unintended. You know, when you think about it from the insurer's perspective, there will likely be some fights in court around, well, that's not what we ever meant as the insurance company. And policyholder says, well, that's too bad. That's not what the policy says. And there may be some adverse judgments against the carriers, but that's not even close to happening at this point. Most of the issues have been just summary judgments or other early judiciary proceedings that have actually moved one step towards, oh, geez, this could be a problem, but it's not really a problem yet. And just to clarify, now we're more than a year on since the first lockdowns. I presume that current portfolio is very clear on pandemic, and I'm presuming that exclusions are the norm. Is that correct? Again, in the primary space, most of the contract language hasn't changed because it was already pretty good with what was covered and what wasn't. And then, you know, the virus exclusions that, that were on a lot of the policies out there that were on standardized forms. In the reinsurance space, we have become much crisper in terms of defining in especially property contracts related to business interruption, what's covered and what's not. Most of it's exclusions, because even if you wanted to offer the cover, nobody wants to pay for it. It's too expensive. So it has resulted in mostly exclusions across the board in property contracts. Casualty becomes a bit of a one-off discussion about the underlying exposures and being sensible about what really rolls into the portfolio and is exclusion makes sense? Is it even applicable? So it's a little more nuanced, I think, when you get into the third-party space. The last word on COVID would be the Swiss Re, as one would expect, very prudent reinsurer at the top of the scale, has made some very robust reserving moves for COVID. Do you think the industry as a whole can feel confident that it's made similarly robust moves and is financially well-prepared for what is going to come in 2021 and beyond? Or do you think it's going to be slippage? So this is a really tough question to answer, mostly because when you look at our publicly disclosed headline reserve numbers, yes, they're quite large, but we also are quite clear that the vast majority of that is IBNR. We think there's still a lot of looming problems that will work its way through the system, but they haven't really manifested yet. And a couple of jurisdictions have some exceptions. You know, we do see some higher case and perhaps even at this point paid claims that are in the UK market as an example. But in the US, most of the issues are things that we think could be a problem for us as, again, litigation opens back up, but it's not something we've actually seen come to fruition yet. I mean, there's an enormous part of it that obviously comes behind event cancellation. That's pretty cut and dry. We were a big player in that space, both in insurance and reinsurance worldwide. And then the surety space, you know, credit and surety space, there was a pretty big number involved there. But in terms of the business interruption or the GL component of it, or anything related to DNO and ENO, those are all huge unknowns at this point, which is why we take some pretty conservative reserving positions, thinking I'd rather be safe than sorry. And if I'm wrong about how bad this can be, that's good. That's good for us and the industry underlying us, but we're not so sure that's the case yet. But you're not reserving as you go. You, you know, you're making a valiant attempt to go for an ultimate net loss. And that's why we looked like an outlier in the beginning. So in second quarter of 20, we looked like an outlier compared to our peer group in terms of the reserve numbers that we were putting up against our capital base and the, the exposures we had in the market. That gap closed enormously as you moved through the rest of 2020. 
And now I would say we don't look like an outlier at all in terms of the magnitude versus the you know, exposures we write globally. But I'm not worried the industry is under-reserved, to be honest. I think we are in a comfortable spot with what we know right now. Going back to the harder market, okay, you're saying it's not a hard market for reinsurers, but certainly one of the highlights within the insurance firmament generally has been specialty and excess and surplus lines and have really been the focus for formations of new capital looking to deploy in the US market. What do you think the prospects are for those sort of reloaded market players and some new players? What do you think their prospects of that kind of class of 2020 will have in building successful new franchises? And is it the sort of thing that you're supportive of as a reinsurer? Well, we're always supportive of new markets. You know, consolidation in the insurance space is actually not good for reinsurers. We do like to spread and diversify our client base. So when new clients appear, assuming they're responsible operators and we think they have an opportunity for successful run at a venture, that's actually good, I think, not just for us, but for society as a whole. You know, more choice and more selection is great everywhere. That said, you know, the, the amount of capital that's flowed in to some of these new operators is really just small. You know, it's big for them individually and some pretty interesting names attached to a lot of these ventures that have popped up. But you're talking about something that between 10 and $20 billion of underlying capital and 20 would be really stretching it, I think, against the capital base of the industry. This is kind of a drop in the bucket. Now, they do enjoy the luxury of a blank slate to start with. They don't deal with anything legacy. They don't have any challenges they're starting out of the gate with in terms of legacy reserves or other liabilities that are sitting there that they have to worry about and manage. So that does give them a small advantage, I think, compared to incumbents. But then the incumbents have enormous distribution plants and enforced business books. Neither one of these issues is new in 2020. It's the same type of stuff that would have been there when the, the other classes came up shortly after 9-11 and in 05 as well. But no, we were excited to see some of them come up, but I haven't seen major market participation from any of them yet, to be honest. So it's probably not an earth-shattering event. It's not something that's going to come in and put the fire out. It's not going to suddenly spoil that market. It's not going to suddenly take the top off all those rate rises, all that kind of thing. It's not going to be a market, if I'm right to summarize the way you're analyzing that, that it's fairly peripheral and it's at the margins. And they might have some very successful franchises over time, but no, it's not in and of itself fundamentally changing the dynamics of what's going on in the marketplace. Another market which tends, of course, to move in its own orbit just due to its nature and the fact that it's new, fast-growing new market, is cyber insurance. It's now entering a maturing phase and it's having quite a sharp correction in its rates and terms. Do you think that correction's got a way to run yet? So we are not the biggest participant in the cyberspace, and we do see some of this exposure roll in through larger reinsurance arrangements, but monoline cyber is not a big part of our portfolio. Probably not the best position to answer the question, to be honest, but the thing I think that bothers me the most is when I talk to people who are active participants in the primary space, especially when you're talking small to middle market cyber, mom and pop commercial areas where ransomware is all of a sudden actually a significant problem. And you see these portfolios that we thought were relatively less volatile than the types of exposures that come in through major corporations' cyber limits. And they're having trouble with those portfolios. The writers, the primary writers are having trouble with ransomware behind mom and pop bakers, plumbers, and this type of stuff. That really makes me uneasy about how well people have qualified or quantified the risk in this space. You're not tempted by the way it's re-rated to be diving in then? There's not as much premium as people 
think there is in cyber at this point. I mean, there's some pretty ambitious projections of what the cyber insurance and reinsurance market can become. But if you look at those numbers today, again, single digit billions of dollars is really what's in that space. And compared again to the overall insurance and reinsurance market, I think there's too much risk, frankly, for the premiums that are collected. Generally, this is not a space that we get excited about. It's not big enough and there's too much uncertainty right now. Is that because obviously you've got attritional losses? We all know, of course, it's massively cat-exposed to the point of potentially being systemically exposed. And then there are also mids seem to be quite a lot of high-frequency mid-sized cat-type losses that happen as well. So just saying there's not enough premium in the pot to pay for all those three. I think so. And for those who operate in the space much more effectively than we do at Swiss Re necessarily, and, and I say this because this is a primary insurance offering, it's a service offering first. If you don't have the response infrastructure for when an incident is reported, you're not operating a very good cyber system. You know, you need the people that can go in and do the forensics. You need the crisis PR folks. You need everything else that goes along with the response mechanisms already integrated in your offering before you worry about the indemnity payments. You know, indemnity payments should come dead last. If you can't manage an incident when it happens at scale for whatever those scenarios are that have been underwritten for, and hopefully all the ones that you're covering that you've thought through, then you're going to find yourself, I think, in trouble. And as a reinsurer, we are providing a lot of capital and some underwriting expertise, perhaps, but we don't manage those service infrastructures. That's not what we do. So we're pretty distant from it, which makes us very uncomfortable. We don't see an exceptionally good service infrastructure with people who are writing that stuff. You pick your partners, but you play in a very limited way. Presumably, you pick the ones that you feel have got the best infrastructure to deal with all this. Yes, generally. Something else that's been happening in the market, completely changing the subject, is I've been writing about InsurTech for four or five years, do conferences and all sorts of things about it. But we've entered a new phase with lots of IPOs and SPAC flotations happening with some quite high valuations on them. What do you think reinsurers, and obviously reinsurers have been backing InsurTech since the early days, often strategically. What do you think you can learn from some of these high valuations that are being placed on these InsurTech IPOs? Yeah, so when I think about InsurTech, you know, this is a space I spend quite a bit of time on here in the US market. There's really two flavors. You know, so you have the ones I think you're asking about, which are more the insurance entity type ones. And whether they're operating as an MGA or moving towards or already achieved full stack insurance status, that grouping. And then there's the InsurTech, what I will call service or OPEX, you know, enabling type of InsurTech companies. And some of those have actually grown and IPO'd as well. I am enamored with the ones that make the industry work better, right? I love to see those because entrepreneurs have figured out in certain areas how they can create an offering that does indeed add value if it's employed properly in both the primary and the reinsurance space to either decrease costs, increase distribution penetration, a mix of those two things, depending on how they stitch the service offering together or whatever they've built. Those are good. And you know, there's some that work and some that fail. And just like every other entrepreneurial bucket of businesses, you know, you're not going to see them all be wildly successful. The full stack insurance carrier and MGA space, there are very, very few of these that have actually become successful in my view. No matter what these valuations say, I think there are some extremely lofty valuations for the ones that we know pretty well and have been involved with enough either from the beginning or along the way when they were running into challenges. I think there's very, very few of these folks who truly are going to succeed at a large scale, certainly to the 
level that the valuations are expecting in many of those full stack or, or MGA situations. So you stick most of the ones that are providing a valuable service to the insurance industry, making it better underwriting or better at driving down on expenses, that kind of thing, rather than the ones that are full stack that are probably looking to take everyone on and disrupt everybody. Fundamentally, it doesn't make sense to me to see somebody who is creeping in to compete head-to-head with insurance carriers, and that's essentially what some of these folks are doing. You take the full-stack example, they have built whatever awesome system they think is going to outwit everybody in the industry in the primary space, and they're going to compete head-to-head with all the incumbents. I believe they will be successful in carve-out niches in certain circumstances, but why would they be valued at 10x? the incumbents or higher than that in some cases. It just doesn't make sense to me fundamentally. You're not a big buyer of some of the newest entrants on the NASDAQ at the moment then? I actually think some of them are good companies. I just don't understand the logic behind the valuations. And some of them are not such good companies. I really don't understand the valuations, but there are some good operators out there. It's just the valuations seem to be ridiculously lofty for what I understand about their fundamental businesses. Over here in London, we've had some interesting technological developments with algorithmic underwriting, a syndicate at Lloyd's, and automatic provision of capital. Is this appealing to you when you see this developing over in your market? Is it appealing or is it something that scares you? Both. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Uh, So appealing because if you can actually have data science used appropriately to better assess risk and then better price it, that should be better for the industry as a whole and and running a more efficient and fair business. Fair is the key, and this is why it scares me, because as the regulators in a lot of jurisdictions here have pointed out, and some other constituent groups that rightfully have concerns that the last thing we want to see is automated institutionalization of things that are discriminatory. You can accidentally end up in this space quickly And it's not where we want to be. The regulators are very keen on this. And it's one of the reasons I think that we've seen heavy, heavy resistance to most of these algorithms rolling through regulatory regimes. And I think it's a very legitimate concern. Because if you think about what could be institutional discrimination that sits inside of the industry already, and then all we do is automate it through a computer system, if that scenario existed, that's much worse than running it the way it is today. And trying to make sure that we're not allowing any of that activity to go on in our industry. It probably scares me more than gets me excited. You know, I like to think we're pretty good at risk assessment today. Could the computers and the algorithms make it better? Maybe, but I worry about the trade-off, to be honest. But away from personal lines insurance, where we can see that society might get in the way and algorithms getting too smart about risk selection... What about in the specialty markets or in the commercial insurance markets where the buyers are much more sophisticated? In that kind of marketplace, do you think there's going to be a place for that in removing a lot of the frictional cost, particularly within the subscription market? A lot of underwriters looking at the same risk and doing all the same work on it and maybe lining up capacity in a more efficient way once everyone agrees that it passes muster, could get placed more quickly. And would you be interested in supplying some of that automatic capacity behind some of these operations. Specialty and complex risks is not where I would get excited about this because that to me is not homogenous. And then you're putting automatic capacity behind really complicated decision-making. That doesn't get me too excited at all. If you could think about homogenous risk pools that we as reinsurers maybe struggle to get access to, there's stuff that the carriers choose not to reinsure. 
the point is, even if we're already a big participant in a space where we think, I generally understand all of the homeowners business in the United States. I mean, minus the cap risk, attritional on homeowners in most jurisdictions, there's some nuance, you know, state to state or geography to geography, but we understand that quite well. I look at that as an example of a homogenous risk pool that if I said, I could write homeowners business more effectively with some algorithms, that would be interesting. But then we're back in the consumer space again. I think it's very difficult to find that example in the commercial space. Where I do think there's going to be examples of great technology improvements and underwriting in the commercial space is if we can actually start having the insurance industry and reinsurance industry after that digest the data streams that come out of those spaces. So if you think about Internet of Things and all of the devices that are producing data that you could then use you know, in manufacturing processes to see how well equipment's operating at any given point in time and know that somebody's actually not only watching it, but then reacting or better than that, being proactive about what that data is telling them to do and how they operate their business. That's a better risk, right? And that better risk should pay less for their insurance than somebody who doesn't have those types of capabilities. I think that connectivity is not there yet in most cases, but will be soon. And then that is actually where I see probably a bigger advantage. You know, you invest in loss mitigation and loss control, you get better insurance rates. That's the way it's supposed to work. I'd rather avoid the loss than have to write indemnity checks. But reinsurance is not where that starts. Keith, thanks so much for giving me the time. I've come to the end of my question. So unless you've got anything else to add, I'd just like to thank you for giving me the time and for being so frank and so concise on all your answers. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Good luck with all the upcoming renewals and hope you'll come back and speak to us soon. Mark, it's wonderful to talk to you again and best of luck with the Voice of Insurance. It's a great platform and really happy to be here today with you. Thank you for the time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>